0: core of the matter everybody the weekly public affairs show of 90.3 the core i'm your host Yashwant Manjana. unfortunately we didn't have a live show last week due to some issues setting up this week's show actually took a couple weeks to prepare but hey maybe uh, it shows in the preparation we got a great show for you guys tonight we're going to be talking about the recent revolutions in egypt and i have a couple of really good interviews planned for you guys to start off with, I got a pre-recorded interview that I did on Friday with Professor Cherry Kalowi, uh, art history professor here at Rutgers, who spoke about the recent revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt at an event on Bush Campus Center. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview and I hope you find it as informative and interesting as I did. Again, you're listening to Core of the Matter here, 90.3 of the core. Thanks for listening, everybody. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself for the audience?
1: Uh, I am Tarek Tahlawi. Uh, I am uh, originally Tunisian. I teach the history and art history of North Africa and the Middle East here at Red
0: Okay. Now, you were a speaker at an event a couple weeks ago on Bush Campus about the uh, revolutions in Egypt and Tunisia. Can you tell us a little bit about the event?
1: Well, the event was organized mainly by the Middle Eastern uh, Center. Here at Red stand, it was about uh, what was happening in Tunisia and Egypt. A few faculty members who are um, uh, associated with with the Middle Eastern Center spoke at at the event. Uh, Each one one basically spoke uh, in relation to the field uh, or the the area uh, he or she is uh, more familiar with.
0: So uh, let's start with Tunisia then, uh, since that was the country you personally spoke about. Uh, How long had the uh, dictator there, Ben Ali, been in power, and how did he come to power in the first place?
1: Well, first of all, I actually... official
0: Some of the specific grievances that the people of Tunisia had with the uh, Ben Ali regime?
1: Well, there were two major problems economic, social problems, and political problems. At uh, the so beginning, December 17th, when this whole uprising started uh, in this remote city called Sidi Bouzid, which is a little bit away from the coastline. Tunisia, by the way, is uh, most of the main major cities, the capital is located on the coastline the uh, cities and villages that are away from the coastline are usually the poorest. So one, in one of the provinces and cities that are in the interior of the country, one of the poorest uh, cities and provinces that called Sidi Bouzid, there is this guy who uh, put himself on fire. And this was because he felt uh, oppressed by the local administration. And he was protesting corruption mainly. Uh, but uh, the first process Following that, following that specific incident and the following days in that small city and in neighboring cities, in neighboring provinces, were targeting at least uh, during four days, mainly economic and social pro- problems. Uh, corruption um, was seen as part of these uh, social and economic problems. Uh, and then st- things started after day four or day five, started to go into a political level. Uh, One of the main things that people need to know about Tunisia is that there is a huge uh, middle class um, education is free in Tunisia. For last year, there were 300,000 students in uh, universities. This is in a country of uh, about 11 million, so a lot of students. So you have many people who are graduating, uh, yet not finding um, the job that they would expect after spending uh, four years um, in, in colleges. So uh, uh, a huge middle class, a lot of educated people yet unemployed, um, and a middle class that is impoverished. Uh, This is happening, I think, throughout the world, and it happened also in Tunisia during the last two decades. So that was one major part of it. The second part was, of course, uh, the autocratic uh, system. People um, uh, realized very quickly that uh, corruption was not uh, the act of few uh, bureaucrats in the lower level, uh, in in the provinces, it was the whole system. So uh, m- protesting against corruption uh, uh, became, by necessity, a, pro- a protest against uh, the political system itself. Uh, political power of, of Ben Ali. Um, ben Ali's uh, family uh, is involved in, in a lot of mafia-like. Um, was involved in a lot of mafia-like schemes. They were. The privatization that was going going on in Tunisia through the two last decades uh, um, under the tutelage of uh, uh, institutions like the IMF and the International Bank was a way for them to uh, basically um, take possession of many uh, major institutions in Tunisia, major companies of the state were um, taken over by the family. Uh, People uh, knew all along, but that... that, uh, This was like an opportunity people were able finally to break a cycle of fear was crucial in having a clear political agenda in the process. So uh, going back to your question, two main problems, uh, social, social, um, socioeconomic
0: and political. Okay. So at what point did people in the country know that that the Ben Ali regime was going to end? What was the ultimate tipping point?
1: The ultimate tipping point was in week three. The whole uprising uh, lasted four weeks, between December 17th and uh, January 14th. Um, in week three, uh, what happened is that uh, the wave of killing street demonstrators came to its climax. The security forces of, of uh, Ben Ali uh, were killing people since week one, but they were killing uh, two or three people per week. Read in week three in the weekend of week three in a neighboring province uh, to uh, the city of Sidi Wazid in a province called uh, called Katrine they killed about 30 people in one day uh, 30 young men mainly um, it, it was a massacre and uh, people were able to see the whole thing uh, as it was unfolding because simply uh, as the security forces were killing snipers actually there were snipers who were doing this uh as these snipers were killing uh, people were um, shooting uh brief video clips and posting them on the internet and from the internet to uh, major satellite channels so everyone was was aware of this as it was happening and uh by by the end of those weeks
0: People died during the overthrow of uh, the Ben Ali regime. And what's Ben Ali doing right now, now that he's left the country?
1: We don't have uh, official numbers from uh, the Tunisian government yet. Uh, the only um, uh, credible... Was 219, and that's except that without counting the number of uh, dead among the security forces, uh, and uh, that also regardless of the people who uh, were injured. I have to say also that uh, after January 14th, there was another wave of killings. Uh, What happened is that uh, people who were um, security forces who were loyal to uh, Ben Ali continued shooting people. There was an armed conflict, really, between uh, the army. Uh, which was on the side of of the people or was at least against uh loyal forces of, of the, the forces that were loyal to the president uh between the army and, and these loyal forces this armed conflict which which happened throughout the country uh lasted about a week or, or a little less and uh, during this time many people died including civilians so uh, 219 without counting the deaths uh, among the security forces and the army and without counting that, who died after January
0: 14th. Oh, okay. So what can we expect the future of Tunisian politics to look like? Uh, will there be democratic governments? And uh, if so, what relationship will the new uh, government have with the United States and other Western industrialized countries? Uh,
1: what we have now is a very vague, uh, ambiguous uh, situation. Uh, it's, um, uh, the, the way the, the president... Uh, by the way, the president now is... Uh, uh, his his fate is not uh, very clear. He lives uh, as a political refugee in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, many rumors about his health, and people uh, suspect that is is uh, is at the origin of these rumors to fight extradition to Tunisia because Tunis- the Tunisian government is asking uh, Saudi Arabia to uh, send him back. Um, now there are there is a trial against him and against his family. He's seen as uh, responsible of. Uh, most of the corruption that happened in the country and the killings that happened, especially during the months of the uprising. So uh, w- what we have is that uh, the constitution did not really foresee this uh, weird situation that is the president that fled the country without giving his re- resignation. So uh, the the it was not clear how they would. Um,
0: uh, but is the, okay, he didn't give his resignation, but is that like a paperwork thing? I mean, he's fled the country. Uh, isn't it pretty clear he's not going to be taking control of the country again? Of course,
1: that, that, that's true, but um, uh, there are two. Uh, the Constitution in Tunisia uh, ha- has two, basically, uh, uh, hypotheses or, or ways if something happens to the president, and in any of these two um, uh, hypotheses, uh, there is nothing about a president fleeing without giving his resignation. Giving his resignation or dying are these these two cases are the clear cases that are indicated very clearly in the in the in the, in the constitution. So what happened afterwards is that uh, January fourteenth between January fourteenth and January fifteenth there was a confusion among the what remains of the government in Tunisia and the army. Um, they based themselves first on on one section of the constitution and then. They changed their minds and based themselves on, on another section. Uh, it was basically who would take over. Who is the person who would take over? Is, is it going to be the prime minister or the um, um, or the president of the national uh, assembly or the parliament? Um, so uh, by the end, they uh, ended up excluding totally Ben Ali as, uh, as if he, he died, basically, or, or he uh, gave his resignation and uh, gave power to uh, the president of the parliament, who gave on his side, the prime minister, the right to constitute a new government, uh, which happened in January 17th. Uh, The problem is that this government was mostly made up of people who were uh, members of uh, the old regime. So a new wave of uh, street demonstrations started, causing a lot of political instability throughout the country, uh, many strikes this continues by the way until uh, this moment today there was a huge sit uh, in and street uh, demonstration that besieged the um, main uh, offices of the of, uh, of the government uh, there are still people are still uh, asking for, the, for 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 um, a national uh, a constitutional council excluding all members of the of the old regime uh, and establishing a new constitution so uh, um, conflict uh, is still uh, happening, what we have in Tunisia is, that's why I'm refraining myself from calling it a revolution because what we have is what we have is an uprising, a fleeing president uh, uh, political instability, but the revolution is still in the making, that is uh, the old regime is not over yet and uh, the conflict is still going on and people are not clear uh, how the democratic transition is going to uh, be handled so all these points, all these indications uh, that would uh, clear the way towards uh, a clear democratic transition are, not, are still ambiguous and they're still uh,
0: vague. I think you've done a, an excellent job, really, of portraying as detailed a picture of what the situation in Tunisia is right now that our listeners could have hoped for. So, you know, I'd like to move on now to Egypt. Now, how did their dictator, Mubarak, initially acquire power?
1: Uh, Mubarak, who was uh, one of the main uh, members of the Egyptian army, he was actually the head of the air forces uh, in Egypt, uh, and he was appointed uh, as a vice president by President Sadat. President Sadat, who uh, was ruling until uh, the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, Uh, President Sadat was uh, killed by... uh, uh, Islamist militants uh, who were um, angry about uh, him finding uh, a peace agreement with uh, with Israel. Um, so when Sadat was killed, the vice president took power, and uh, the vice the vice president was Hosni Mubarak. That was 1981. Mubarak, uh, since that time, uh, was ruling uh, with uh, relatively an iron fist. Uh, his his uh, his regime was a dictatorship. There is no doubt about it. But there was a margin of um, freedom of speech. What we have in, in Egypt, which is different than what we had in, in Tunisia, was that during the Mubarak era, you can bark, you can uh, criticize the government, you can say whatever you want, but the government would, would do to you whatever um, they want. Uh, they, they basically suspended all um, normal laws. Uh, they instituted special special law that had... Uh, that went do
0: So what, did, what were some specific actions on the part of Mubarak to create unrest among the people over the years?
1: Well, two things. Uh, first of all, uh, Mubarak's economic policy, which was the continuation of Sadat's uh, economic policy that began in the 70s, was relying heavily on uh, the instructions of the IMF, Bank, uh, and National Bank, and basically uh, the uh, middle class, Violated, Uh, people are tortured in police stations throughout the country. Actually, one of the things that uh, started this was in in Alexandria, which is the second uh, largest city in in, in Egypt. A few months ago, a young man was uh, tortured in the uh, police station, and uh, he was thrown in the street, uh, dying. And that started a little uprising in the city uh, in Alexandria, and. uh, Many people in Facebook started uh, organizing themselves around this uh, incident. Uh, and uh, when things happened in Tunisia, when the uprising happened in Tunisia, that was uh, another reason among so many reasons for uh, young Egyptians to uh, try and uh, topple down uh, the regime. So, uh, again, economic, social uh, factors and uh, political factors, especially. A lot of oppression uh, by by the security forces. Security forces gained a lot of power uh, beginning from the 1990s because uh, the Mubarak regime was fighting uh, Islamist uh, militants. Actually, someone like Zawahiri, who is number two in Al-Qaeda, was the leader of one of these uh, so-called jihadist groups who were fighting the Egyptian regime during the 1990s. Uh, So during those circumstances and... uh, under the premise of fighting terrorism, uh, the security forces gained a lot of power, uh, and uh, in the process, they ab- abused their power and they were they continued torturing people and using a lot of uh, extrajudicial.
0: Uh Wait, so, hang, hang on a second. Uh, sorry to cut you off there. So, Mubarak, the Mubarak regime received a lot of a lot of power so that they could fight the terrorists, so they could fight Al Qaeda.
1: That they gave themselves a lot of power. That is, they gave um, the regime gave itself uh, the possibility to go beyond law to torture. uh, uh, There was a law that was called the emergency law that started in 1981, and uh, it was even uh, enlarged and reinforced during the 1990s as the regime was fighting these uh, so-called jihadist groups. So torture was permitted. Uh, Holding people uh, captive for a very long time without uh, trial was something that is uh, routine. Um, I'll I'll just remind people here that uh, coming to the issue of torture, that the Bush administration, when uh, they decided to send people to be tortured throughout the world, and especially in the Middle East, one of the places they chose to send people to was Egypt, because Egypt was well known to be uh, a place of very skilled, people and security uh, forces uh, using torture
0: you're, you're so, talking about uh, you're talking about rendition right now
1: exactly the rendition in the rendition process one of the main uh, destinations uh, uh, of and prisoners and Guantanamo uh, prisoners
0: was uh, Egypt I've heard that the new vice president of Egypt Omar Suleiman was actually the man who was responsible for running the rendition program in Egypt on behalf of our CIA is that true
1: he was the head of the intelligence uh, agency, in uh, the Egyptian intelligence agency. He was uh, in charge of all exterior operations, the Egyptian intelligence uh, agency. So he would be the, the guy to hold uh, responsible of, of this. Uh, the thing is, is that uh, Omar Suleiman is no longer the vice president. One of the outcomes of the resignation of Mubarak in February 11th was uh, that total power was given not to Omar Suleiman, not his, to his vice president, but to, to the army, to the council of, of, of the army.
0: Oh, okay. All right. I mean, is that good news? Uh, uh, what, what does that mean for the people of Egypt?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It, it's a very vague situation. Uh, on the one hand, it's always dangerous to give uh, political power to, to the army. Uh, There are very few uh, cases where the army, uh, any army, would be given political power and would leave uh, that power uh, to uh, the hands of the civilians. So uh, it's it's a huge risk. But what happened in the process of the uprising in Egypt uh, was that the army was seen by the people as police supporting the resignation of Mubarak. The army uh, was some kind of uh, guarantor of... uh, era um uh, there is uh, relatively a lot of trust by the egyptian people into the army for, for so many reasons uh, including historical reasons and uh, uh because they, the army was not really involved in the corruption of of, of the regime uh, and uh, until now the army is behaving uh, relatively well uh, one of the few uh, first things they did is that they uh uh, appointed uh, a committee to revise the constitution, uh, and they appointed as the head of this committee uh, someone who is uh, well known to be a very independent uh, judge and uh, someone who is uh, uh, whose field is con- constitutional law. Uh, and uh, so these uh, steps were were seen as uh, um, a good, promising steps. The constitution will, the new constitution will be amended in. Uh, these coming days uh, and afterwards there will be uh, a free election uh, so it's uh, uh, until now the army is um, uh, is, is uh, following uh, uh, the promises they gave to, to the people when they took power in February 11th which is uh, leading the country towards
0: a democratization process okay so what was it that finally compelled Mubarak to to step down and and leave power.
1: It's uh, that's one of the really difficult questions, even though so many people would have ready answers for that. Uh, so the, the major major player really, and uh, that we shouldn't forget, is clearly the streets the, the the people who decided to go to to the streets, the Egyptian streets, over and over. Uh, this is unprecedented in uh, Egyptian history to have. Millions of people—I mean, literally millions of people—going to the streets day after day, day after day, uh, beginning in January twenty-five uh, up to February eleven. Um, the whole country was uh, basically on hold. Uh, no one was was doing anything except basically going to, to the streets. So the the pressure of the street was was clear, was was overwhelming, was unprecedented, was surprising. Um, so we we should give. And by the streets, I mean basically, you you make the whole country stop, stop working, doing nothing. Um, it's, it's more than a general strike. It's a uh, it's, uh, it's it's a classic rebellion, basically.
0: So, and this was all done peacefully. Yeah. Violence wasn't needed.
1: The, the only violence that was used was against. Egypt and Tunisia. Again, Tunisia happened first. Uh, January 14th, the president fled. The Egyptians started their whole uh, movement in January 25. Everyone was waiting for a different scenario, but what happened is uh, a scenario that is not very different than Tunisia. It was certainly a little different, but uh, it was not really totally different, uh, especially uh, when it comes to the behavior of the army. The army uh, acted uh, in a very similar way Um, than the Tunisian army. This is not uh, following the orders of shooting people, not intervening by any means in the oppression of the street demonstrations. And that built this whole trust between the demonstrators and and the army. And sometimes people in the streets were hiding behind tanks, were were staying near army uh, forces and soldiers to basically protect themselves because they saw the army as, as their ally, yet it's not clear what was the uh, intention of, of, of the army. But clearly, uh, uh, the few days that uh, preceded February 11th, uh, the army was increasingly showing signs that uh, um, it took sides. Uh, they took the side of, uh, not necessarily the people in the street, but they took uh, the side of uh, pressuring Mubarak into into resignation. Uh, what, what happened uh, just uh, one day before, two days before, uh, February 9th, February 10th is not clear yet, but uh, there seems to be uh, an actual military coup. And uh, uh, the signs for that, the indications for that, are very classical signs for people who live in the Middle East, especially for people who know what, uh, the military coups that happened in the 1950s, 1960s, as uh, towards the Middle East. Um, in February 10th, or uh, actually February 9th, of the night of between February 9th and February 10th, um, military, uh, the army, um, what, what the so called the Council of the Military Forces, uh, of the Armed Forces, the Egyptian Armed Forces, which is a council that should be under, uh, should be ruled basically, and should convene only under the President, Mubarak. So this council convened uh, without the President, and they showed footages of this uh, meeting without the uh, the presence of the president or the vice president, and they issued the so-called statement number one. And statement number one, this is one of the key words of any military coup, uh, especially when it comes to the Middle East. And in this statement number one, what they said is that uh, basically they are on the part of the demands, the legitimate demands, that's a quote, uh, the legitimate demands of the Egyptian people. So that seemed very well like a coup, and uh, it was like an ultimatum to Mubarak to to resign. That's why on February 10th, uh, everyone was waiting for Mubarak to give his speech and to announce his resignation, but uh, he seemed at the last moment to decide not to do so, Uh, but he did so
0: uh, the next day. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, so I only have uh, two or three questions left to ask you. So... Would you say it's more accurate to describe what happened in Egypt as, as a military coup or a popular uprising? It was
1: both. It was the popular uprising that led to uh, the division of the regime into two parts. Uh, and in one of these, uh, or two camps, in one of these camps uh, is the president and the ruling party, uh, the whole elite of businessmen who were related to, uh, to him, an oligarchic class, really, that was re- that was related to his son, who was seen as uh, the inheritance of power uh, after Mubarak. Um, that's camp one. Camp two was the army. And the army decided to uh, um, uh, to go into another way. And that happened only under the pressure of the popular uprising. So um, it's, uh, it's a popular uprising that enforced military coup inside the regime, a military coup that was meant to achieve the main demand of the popular uprising, which is the uh, resignation of Mubarak and the start of a genuine democratic
0: uh, process. What influence did the United States play, especially in the uh, approach taken by the Egyptian army, given how much money the United States spends funding the Egyptian army, and what role will the United States have in the future government of Egypt, given that the army is in control right now and, and the army has very close ties to the United States government?
1: Um, well, many people ex- expected that uh, the United States had a lot of leverage when it comes to the Egyptian army because of the um, uh, size of the military aid and financial aid given by the United States to the Egyptian army. And uh, certainly the, the U.S. administration had you know, some leverage in the decisions taken by the Egyptian army. Yet I, I think it, we, uh, we should not exaggerate a lot uh, how much power the U.S. had and how much influence the U.S. had within the ranks of, of uh, the military leadership.
0: Okay. Last question. What impact do you think this largely nonviolent and successful uprising by the Egyptian people will have on the future of Middle Eastern politics, particularly as a alternative to, say, the, the terrorist uh, jihadist approach that uh, Al-Qaeda seems to favor?
1: Um, clearly, um, so this is a question of two parts. First part is, certainly, the Egyptian uh, uprising will will have and is having already a lot of uh, impact on the region. Um, Uh, What's happening in Libya is certainly the the result of uh, the impact of both the two neighboring, Tunisian and Egyptian revolution. Uh, It's not just by chance that uh, we are seeing uh, uh, a huge uprising now, uh, specifically in in Libya. Libya is located between Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, So that's uh, one indication of how much influence these two major revolutions are having in in the region. second part, uh, yes, certainly... uh, using non-violent means to change uh, uh, the regime, having uh, in their agenda uh, also um, democratization, not um, uh, God's law and or uh, a theocratic state. These two points clearly marginalize basis uh, and uh, very factors that would usually um, enforce and and all these so-called jihadist groups. So um, it's clearly this movement, this non-violent movement, this movement with uh, uh, having at as, as, as its top uh, democratization as the main goal um, is clearly marginalizing any kind of uh, violent movements who are leading the way towards uh, another despotic system. All
0: right, well, thank you for joining us, Professor. That was great. I really think that uh, your commentary really provides excellent background information for our listeners about what took place during these two revolutions so thank you for that thank you unfortunately that's core of the matter for this week everybody Uh, we had some technical difficulties with that last interview I have no idea what that ringing sound was from Uh, first time trying to do a live interview here Uh, hopefully have it figured out for future interviews but I hope you guys enjoyed at least the the first interview with uh, with the professor uh, I think he really provided some interesting information about the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt uh, and I don't know what else to say to you guys I'm really sorry about what happened sometimes that's the way it goes in college radio what can you do uh, but th- again, those of you who listened, thank you for listening to the show this week. And if you have any ideas for a future core of the matter, you can email me at public affairs director at the core.fM. So that's everything we have for this week. And join us again next week when all the interviews will be recorded in advance to prevent a disaster like the one that just happened today from happening again. So uh, (laughs) that's all for Core of the Matter this week, everybody. I'm your host, Yashwant Majanath. Thank you for joining me. And uh, stay tuned for some more great core radio. You've been listening to the Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. Opinions expressed on the Core of the Matter are those of the participants only, and not necessarily those of WVPHFM or Rutgers
1: University.